All right. We are going to be wrapping up 1 Thessalonians 2 and into chapter 3 today. Um, before we do that, let me just start us off by praying real quick. Dear Father, we thank you for another chance to read your word. Lord, I pray that you would bring clarity tonight through your word. Um, that your spirit who inspired these words would use them to speak to our hearts, to change us. And uh, that you would give us a deeper love for you and your son, uh, for your spirit and your church. Um, I'm asking you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. So you can go ahead and flip over to 1 Thessalonians 2 if you would like. So when we started uh, a couple weeks ago, when we started the, the semester out into 1 Thessalonians, we basically, we walked you through briefly the story behind this book. What brought this book into existence? We talked all about Paul's journey, his second missionary journey that led him here, that he was actually led over into Macedonia from Asia Minor, which is where he wanted to do missions work, but God kept stopping him every time he tried to go somewhere. And then he got a dream of a, of a man from Macedonia saying, come help us. And so they took that as a call from God to come up, and they, they pulled up and started in Philippi, and then made their way over into Thessalonica. We talked about how they suffered persecution there, how a kind of a riot was sprung up there, so that literally they had to slip Paul out of the city at night, and, and he made his way to Berea. Um, but the persecution was so great there. Um, persecution was so, or I'm sorry, that the, the people in Thessalonica were so like hateful of Christians that they actually heard about Berea and chased Paul down in Berea and started trouble for him there, so he had to go. So we talked all about this, and then we talked about what happened after that, and all of Paul's kind of angst back and forth. And, and maybe there's some of you in here going, when we, when we talked through that, going, yeah, but how do we know that? Like, how do we know that Paul had this angst and that he was sending Timothy back and forth? And how do we know that a dream will... The answer is, first of all, the book of Acts. Particularly, Acts 17 talks about Paul's work in Macedonia and down into Achaia. Um, but, but actually, we also know a lot of the background of 1 Thessalonians because of the text that we're about to read. This is actually the passage where Paul gives the background to this letter and says, this is why I'm writing this. This, this is what has happened, he says to the church, since I left you. For those of you who are wondering, it's been months at least probably since they've seen this guy who showed up and told them about a Messiah and then had to slip away when a riot broke out. Um, and so Paul is writing to him now and here he's, he's about to explain a little bit of that. Um, <clears throat> So what we know is that Paul went to Thessalonica, went to Berea, and then Acts 17 said he made his way down into Athens. Um, we're going to read what happens in Athens just a little bit. And then in Corinth, it's from Corinth where is, is where he's sitting right now that he's writing. He's roughly 200 miles away from Thessalonica as he writes these words. Now he was talking last week in chapter 2 about his ministry among them and, and how he cared for them as a father cares for a child and as a mother who's nursing an infant, how, how he, that's the way he cared for them. And so he's describing his ministry and then he says this in verse 17 of chapter 2. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. 
I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Um, Paul says this. This is a really interesting way to start this line. He says, um, but since we were, this is the word he uh, uses to describe his having to leave Thessalonica when he, when he had to get hurried out because he might get killed. He used this phrase, we were torn away from you. We are torn away from you. I want to show you what that word is in the Greek. This is, um, this is transliterated, okay? This is what he says we were. Anybody see an English word in there? This is what Paul says when, when he describes having to leave him. He says, we were orphaned from you. Like, like a child separated from his loved ones. Like, like a kid torn away from his family. That's what it was like when I had to leave you that one night. That was, the, that was what it was like when you had to sneak me out of the city to have to leave. I did not want to go. We were orphaned from you, he says. He says, we wanted to come see you, and I did time and time again, but he says, but Satan hindered us. Now, there's, there's two big questions that come with that. How in the world did Satan hinder Paul from going there? And, and the answer is, we don't know. Um, it could be that, uh, it could be that it was simply the government, like that literally when, when Jason, who was the guy that they stayed with in Thessalonica, and he had to post bail, it could have been literally part of the legal arrangement that this Paul guy cannot set foot in this city again. It, it could have been an, an illness or a sickness that came upon him at this time. Um, Paul does write to the church in Corinth about this thorn in the flesh that he calls a messenger from Satan that came to him, that, that ailed him, and, and, and people don't even know what that is, but some people wonder if, if that's the same thing that kept him from being able to get back to Thessalonica. We don't know. The next question is, how does Paul know it's from Satan? Because we know that, that God has hindered Paul from going places. That's what got him to Thessalonica in the first place. God hindered him from going into different parts of Asia Minor. So how does Paul know the difference between God's hindering and Satan's hindering? And again, we don't know. Um, Acts does tell us that Silas was actually a prophet. Um, that he had the gift of prophecy, and, and so he was kind of known for that. And so there's a chance that Silas was able to discern these things. Um, at this chance, and, and to, to know what was going on in that. But he says, we wanted to, but we couldn't, and, and promise you we tried, for what is our hope or joy or our crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at His coming? He's not talking about, you know, this kind of, this idea that you hear people talk about, um, people getting crowns in heaven and with more jewels for all the good stuff they do. More than likely, Paul is actually talking about the laurel wreath that was worn um, in, as like victors in athletic games, like... Uh, like the Olympics, when you won, you get this wreath. And, and Paul talks about this on more than one occasion, at least again in 1 Corinthians 9, he talks about um, this, this wreath, this crown that is um, a symbol of victory, a prize for what he's done. What Paul says is, when Jesus shows up and wants to know what I did with my life, and Jesus shows up and says, show me that you were working, show me that you were fruitful, Paul says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hold up you. That's what he says to this church. You're, you're the crown that I'm going to show off. You're the ones that I'm going to say, Lord, I was working for you. Look at these people and what is going on in their life. Look at the way they've changed. You, he says, are my crown of boasting to the church in Thessalonica. Um, chapter 3. 
verses 1 through 2, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. So, Paul couldn't go back into the town. For whatever reason, though, Timothy could. And like I said, it could be because Paul was sick. It could be because Paul's face was too well known, because he was known as the leader. And so if he went back in, it was going to cause trouble. But Timothy might be able to sneak back in there. And so Paul, after, after days or weeks of angst in Athens, decides, I can't take it anymore. i got to know. His main concern is, is the church still alive? Like, with all the persecution that they're facing, did they fall back on their commitment? Or are they staying strong? And he's got to know. And so finally he decides, I'm sending Timothy back up there, a trek of, well, by like plane, wherever it's 189 miles. I don't know what it is to get around this little curve thingy, that hook thingy. But we'll just say 200 miles. That, that Timothy has to make his way back up there. It would have taken him, uh, it would have taken him three or four weeks round trip um, to get up there and back. Um, but he sends Timothy up there, and, and he says, I sent to you uh, Timothy, who is God's, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. Now, there are some manuscripts of this scripture here, where, of course, back then, you didn't have like a Xerox machine to copy this, and so if you wanted to copy, you had to have like scribes or copyists who would sit down and handwrite this. And there's some manuscripts where there were some copyists writing this and, and they got to this part and they changed it. And they actually wrote uh, our co-worker and God's servant. Timothy, God's servant. The reason why is because this idea of God being anybody's co-worker, anybody's colleague, that just doesn't sound, that doesn't sit quite right. Like it, it feels weird to kind of put God down on Timothy's level and say, oh yeah, those two are co-workers, work together, they, they kind of partner up on some projects every now and then. It just, it doesn't sound right. And so there were some scribes who said, that, that, that can't be right. And so they changed it to God's servant. But no, it, it, Paul means what he says, that, that Timothy is God's co-worker in the gospel. And I think that that's actually a pretty cool statement here. Timothy, we don't know his exact age, but we know this, that over and over again he's described as young. More than likely, he's somewhere around you guys' age. Maybe, maybe a little bit older, uh, early to mid-20s. He, he hasn't been a Christian real, real long because um, Paul first came to his town on the first missionary journey a few years back in Lystra. And he's only been a part of this missions team for just a few months. So he's, he's a Christian, fairly young in his faith, as far as we know, although his, his mother and grandmother were Jewish and so grew up with that kind of knowledge. But... but fairly young in his faith, and, and, and he's brand new to missions work, only been at it a month or two, and all he knows is everywhere you go with this Paul guy, people go crazy, and it's a little scary, and, and here he is, and Paul says, I want you, Timothy, to go back into the lion's den. I need you to go sneak the, I need you to go in and, and check on the church there, and so he sends this 22-year-old kid, new to the mission field, 200 miles by foot to go and sneak into this place. And, and we know this also, that Timothy has a reputation for being timid. Um, that, that he's a little anxious, that he's, he's not as bold as Paul is. And can you imagine the type of fear in his heart um, to go 200 miles by himself? 
and to go into this place where he knows that Christians are hated. And if he gets there, his goal and purpose is to strengthen and, and exhort and establish, Paul says, this young church of these brand new converts. Timothy, it's your job to fix them if they're messed up, all right? So, 22-year-old, go take care of that, all right? And, and this is Timothy. And can you imagine what's going on in his head there? And there's some people who wonder if when Timothy showed up, if, if that was actually a disappointment to the Thessalonians, that they've been longing to hear from Paul and maybe Silas the prophet this whole time, and he sends what? This kid? And Paul says, but no, 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 you need to know that Timothy doesn't go alone, that, that Timothy isn't just sent there by God, that actually God himself is working alongside of Timothy, that God is his co-laborer in the gospel. Listen, I don't know if this is just something that Paul uses to say, for the apostles, like those who are part of the apostolic team, Paul's team, they're, they're co-workers with God. I don't know for sure, but, but I think that, God, that Paul would be happy to say this, that when you do things for God and His kingdom, that, that when you do those things that scare you, that seem way beyond your ability, when you step out to try and do stuff hard for God, that you do not, you're not just laboring on God's behalf, you're laboring hand in hand with God. That He goes with you and is at work in, in your work as you try to, try to share the gospel, as you try to strengthen people or disciple them. That, that God is, a, in a sense, a co-worker, a co-laborer. And I think there's something that's kind of cool about that. Um, read on in chapter, or in verses 4 through 5. Actually, start in 3. So it says that um, we sent Timothy, our brother, and co-working the gospel to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sit to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain." So Paul sends Timothy because he wants to A, make sure the church is still going, but B, he, he really wants Timothy to strengthen them and make sure that they haven't fallen back due to persecution. We talked about this last week, that the Christian life is one in which we ought to, and Paul said this to the Thessalonians from the beginning, expect affliction, expect suffering. We are, Paul says, what is the word he used? We are what for this? Destined for this. This is, this is your destiny as Christians, to suffer. And not only we said, uh, should you be ready for it to happen, but you ought to live your life in such a way that it will happen sometimes. It ought to cost us to follow Jesus. And Paul says, it will happen. Paul feared um, for the amount, though, that this church, he said, I warned you, but man, it's, it was stronger than even I expected. It was so strong that I didn't know if you and your young faith could make it. And so he sends Timothy there to see if it had survived. And then this is what he says in verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. I mentioned this last week that Paul counts up amongst, the, amongst his suffering in 2 Corinthians 11 
and 12, when he describes his great suffering, one of the things he mentions that he counts as suffering is not just having giant rocks thrown at his head, because that one's in there, and that one we all go, yeah, that, I think that counts, getting giant rocks thrown at your head. That counts as suffering. Um, but he also mentions like being cold for the gospel. And he also mentions one of the main ones is the daily like distress and, and anxiety he feels over the churches. He says, who in our churches that I've planted, who is weak and I don't end up feeling weak with them? Um, who gets led astray and I don't burn and I don't get angry about that? And he counts that as part of the cost of following Jesus is that his heart is going to be wrapped up tightly in the church. And when the church goes this way, so does his heart. And when the church goes that way, so does his heart. It hurts him that much and it makes him that excited to be seeing that. So Paul has, picture this, been worried about this. This is, this is an, amazing, um, an amazing idea that we cannot even fathom in the day of cell phones when you can know anything you want to know in an instant. And when you, when you uh, text your friend and it takes them three minutes to text you back, you're like, come on, man, how long? Like, what are you doing that it took you three minutes to get back to me, right? Um, like, picture this. Paul doesn't know what the state of affairs is in Thessalonica. And he sends, sends Timothy, and he has to wait four weeks before he knows anything. Four weeks to even know if they killed Timothy or not when he goes there. And so he's, all he can do is pray Day and night, he says, I prayed and long and sit there wringing his hands, hoping to hear good news. And then Timothy returns with this good news. And I don't know, but I honestly believe by the way 1 Thessalonians is written, that like the moment Timothy tells him, the church is still there, they're still faithful, they love you and they're trying to follow you, that the moment Paul hears that, he just goes, grab a pen and paper, grab a pen and paper. And, and, and somebody gets it and he just starts he just starts dictating this letter. He's so excited. It seems like that one because Paul's um, language isn't as smooth as it is in a lot of his other letters. He kind of almost falls on top of himself saying things and he repeats himself a lot. And he kind of goes, it's almost like he's just too excited and, and gets into that stuff. But, but I, I think this is really fascinating. Paul's, I said this, Paul's heart rises with the church and falls with the church. His mood, his feeling about life rises with the state of the church and falls with it. Do you have anything in your life that, that your heart rises and falls with like that? Is there anything in your life that like, you, find, you find your mood being dictated by the way it goes? Aside from, you know, OSU football, which, right? <laughs> like I, can, I, can, I can joke about that, but also kind of be somewhat sad about that. Um, that like literally, like I've... I've, this, this is ridiculous to say this, I've felt some of the things that Paul is describing here over OSU football in the past, right? Like this idea of like my whole day being ruined by a loss and there's something cheap about that. There's something weak about it. Like I, I, I want my heart to go up and down in life. That's okay with me. I don't, I don't need to protect my heart so much that it never experiences pain. I want it to go up and down. I just want it to go up and down over the things that matter. And, uh, and that's a great way for you to know what really matters to you. It's not going to be some mission statement that you wrote on your wall. This is what my life is about. It's not going to be something you scribble down in your journal. This is what I care about most. The thing you care about most is the thing that makes your heart go up and down, um, depending on it. That's a great way to know what you love. Paul loved the gospel and Paul loved the church. Um, verses 9 through 10. 
For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now that's a really interesting line right there, and, and, and we'll come back to it in a minute. Um, supply what is lacking in your faith. For now, go to verse 11. Now, May our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. So Paul talks about how we pray earnestly night and day for you. And then actually it looks like in the middle of dictating this, remember he's not writing this, he's just talking out loud. It looks like he almost kind of falls into like just praying in the middle of the letter. And so whoever's writing, Silas, whatever, has to just start keeping up with his prayer, right? And so he's, he starts off by praying here and he does something that may not seem all that odd to you, but it really is significant. He prays not just to God the Father, but he says also to our Lord Jesus Christ. May God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's significant. That's fascinating because 1 Thessalonians is written in 51 AD. That's, that's within a generation of Christ's ministry and life and death here on the earth. Um, and that idea that, that that early, within a generation, they were recognizing Christ as deity. Jews we're recognizing a human being as deity. Again, like to us, in a world where all kinds of crazy people have called themselves God, and you know, you got the freedom to believe that crazy people are God in our, in our world. Like that's, that's not that as huge a deal, but for, for Jewish people, that's beyond, beyond belief. In fact, so crazy is that idea that most liberal scholars, and if you end up taking classes on religious studies here at school, you'll probably hear some sort of theory along these lines that what we have of Christian belief was not like the beliefs about Jesus and who He is, that He rose from the grave and that He's the Son of God. None of that was actually like started early on in Christianity, that those beliefs developed over a long period of time, over 100, 200 years, and slowly the stories about Jesus got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Here we see that 20 years within one generation, Paul is already praying to Jesus as God. And not only that, but he does something really strange in, in the Greek that you can't actually catch. He uses two subjects, our Father and Jesus, and then he uses a, a singular version of the verb for direct. So he's, he's talking about two people, but he doesn't use the plural verb. He uses singular. It would be something like this. Our hope is that God and Jesus directs us. That doesn't make sense. God and Jesus direct us. Yeah, that's two people and a plural verb. But he says God and Jesus directs us, a singular. And you might say to Paul, no, no, no. you said two people, but you said a verb like it was one person. <laughs> and Paul would probably say, ha-ha, that's probably what he would say. Um, I think Paul would say, I know, I know. And, and again, that's, that's something that a lot of people don't like to, um, again, more kind of, liberal and by just just to kind of clarify sometimes i say liberal and that gets confusing especially in an election year um uh like the liberal theologically is different than liberal politically uh, when we talk about liberal theologians we're talking about theologians who do not buy into the truth that this is the inerrant the inherent word of god or the inerrant word of god 
um, that people who don't believe in things like the resurrection um, or don't believe that all of this is reliable and those kinds of things. And so when I say liberal scholarship, that's what I'm talking about. And, and liberal scholars don't like, cannot buy the idea that people this early on would believe that Jesus is deity. Um, but Paul apparently does. Um, this prayer is a bit of transition. He talks about, I want you to grow in love and in holiness. Those ideas right there are going to move us into the next chapter. So, so far it's been kind of greetings. This is where we're at and we love you like crazy. And, and now he's about to move in next week into, and here's where I want you to grow up a little bit. So this is actually kind of fascinating because he does say this phrase here. Um, Paul has said a lot of great things about the church. He loves them. They are doing so much good. They're imitating him. They're imitating the other churches that suffered. They're sharing the gospel. And yet Paul says, but I, I still want to come there and complete what's lacking in your faith. In other words, there's, there's still stuff missing. And, and, and there's still more you need. There's still more you need to grow in. And, and I think that that is a really interesting idea that Paul, for all the good he would say about this church, you are loving the brothers, you are sharing the gospel, you are suffering with joy, and you need to grow some more. Paul would say to them, never ever get complacent with where you're at. And there are a lot of us who would read the way Paul describes the Thessalonian church and say, man, I wish I were like that. And Paul says, me too, and if you were like that, you'd still need to grow up a little bit. And, and the idea is that, that, that this is something that always needs to take place in us. That we don't want to get complacent, and yet we do a lot of times. So, so here's kind of a question for you to think about for a second before we take a break. What do you do when you find yourself being complacent in your Christian life? How do you, how do you deal with that? How do you break out of that? How do you approach complacency in the Christian life? Take a couple minutes, kind of break, stretch, go to the bathroom, whatever, and then Scott will get up here in just a moment. I would just I would just bring just grab your chairs. Are you sure? Okay. You want a pillow to sit on? There's a whole bunch of pillows back there that aren't being used, seriously. Yeah. 
card scripture I think you really need. Oh. I lost it. I didn't really get in. <laughs> Where'd you put my pen? Is this your pen? Yes. Oh, my bad. Okay. What are you, what are you, oh, you're making an announcement. That's right. Whenever you're ready, come in. Yes, yes, yes. What's up, Bo? So what's up? Bow your heads, close your eyes. I'm gonna quickly like, like um, 20. Keep, keep your eyes closed. <laughs> you got like 20 minutes left. Start reading like <laughs> Just reading John. John 1 1. In the beginning. Let me get their attention. Hey, everybody. Let me. May, uh, let me get your attention. Kayla's going to make an announcement about worship. If any of, anybody's interested in worship. All right. Well, I just literally took you. No, no, that's the no. that's the heading. Um, yeah, you get the, the detail. Heading. I was dropped by major, so I should know. Um, yeah, if y'all are interested in doing worship, we do worship at the table every other week, and um, I know a couple people already want to do it. But if you're interested, if you play djembe, guitar, want to sing. <laughs> Um, whatever, like, even if it's, like, unique, like, I'd love to hear, I play the like, like, so, I don't know, whatever, so if you're interested, come find me after, I don't know why I brought my planner up now, but, yeah, I have a planner, and I'm excited to write stuff down, so come find me. Yep. That's it. Nope, alright, gotta go. Yeah, she, she's not giving lessons, she's, she's asking for anybody that, that knows how to, so, next week, we'll, we'll start having worship, kind of every other week, be a part of our time together. And that'll start next week, but, yeah. but Kayla's going to be helping lead that up. So if you, you're interested in that, please see her because we'd really love to get... I'll be over here afterwards. Yeah, so she'd love to get a couple teams together that can help kind of facilitate that. Uh, also, if raise your hand if you are planning on going on the retreat and did not, have not signed up yet. Have not signed up. Planning on going, but haven't signed up. Okay, Anthony. Now, how many of you are going to go now because Anthony's going? Come on. Come on. Hey, it's for the Lord. Yeah. Scott, can you hear me? When does it do? What? Oh, this? Yeah, decide. Tonight, if possible. Oh, For everybody, it's tonight except for Chloe. It's tomorrow morning. Tomorrow afternoon. Okay. Okay. But seriously, I'm supposed to send her numbers tomorrow morning. So please, you can sign up there. You can sign up on Facebook table. Check it out. All right. How many of you have had a moment? Um, how many of you had a moment in at midterms or at some point in the semester 
where you realize, oh crap, um, I, I haven't done anything all semester. And if I don't do something now, it's, it's over. Um, I, I remember having a couple of those realizations when I get a grade back or I get a midterm back or I'm going, oh, wow, I thought I was okay. Um, I, complacency can be kind of an issue. Uh, and, and sometimes we have these moments where we just kind of wake up and we realize, okay, I haven't done anything. And that's now, that's now causing issues. And if I don't do something now, things are going to get bad quick. Uh, some of you know Jim Johnson. He is the pastor at Sunnybrook. Uh, we've been friends for a long time. And he is notorious, notorious for having these kind of moments. Uh, and he's currently in the middle of one. And so I, I asked his permission to tell the story. And he laughed. And he said, of course, I don't care what you tell. Um, so he's notorious for every once in a while getting so fed up with his weight that he chooses to starve himself for months, and, and that's his, this is his weight loss plan, and he does it just out of pure spite for himself. I think he, I literally think, one time Drew made a comment about him, yeah, sure, you won't eat now, but then you'll have 45 brownies later, and you would have thought, you would have thought he challenged him to, like, the, the worst diet plan you could ever, he just decided, all right, Drew, fine, I'm not going to eat, and when I die, everybody's going to know it's your fault. <laughs> That's the way this is going to work. Well, recently, um, recently, actually, funny, funny thing, about three months later, literally, he, for three months, he, this is how long he can hold a grudge. For three months later, he comes in, takes, makes Drew stand up, takes his belt off because he's lost all this weight and none of his pants fit anymore, takes his belt and puts it on him and says, that's your fault, and he walks out of the door. Uh, and I don't know how, much, how many more months it took for him to get his belt back. But recently, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. Uh, recently, recently he's playing pickle. He's on this pickleball diet because he was playing pickleball, and some old guy he plays with a bunch of retired people, um, like twice a week. It's it's hilarious. I don't know. It's like a mixture of handball and tennis. It's like slow motion tennis. It's actually really fun. With smaller court. Um, so recently, this old this old guy walks up to him after he missed a shot, pats him on the belly and says, if you lost 15 pounds, you'd have got that shot. Oh. Yeah. So guess what? Guess what Jim decided to do? Starve himself. Uh, so he's currently on, on the starving plan, and this is his way of, this is his, this is his way of kind of dealing with his unhealthiness, is furthering unhealthiness. Um, um, but he, he does it in a fun way. Anyway, and we get a, we get a great laugh at it. Uh, I've had a moment like this where I've, where I've had this, this moment of realization, and I really, I really truly tried to think of a funny example in my life, and I couldn't think of a funny example. I could only think of a serious one, uh, and, and mainly because the, the ones that really matter for me have been ones that have been really serious in my life. And I remember, I remember this when I was, uh, it was 2013, spring of 2013. So let me back up. My family and I moved here from Southern California in 2010. Um, I was excited to, to come to this opportunity. My family wasn't as excited as I was to move from Southern California to Stillwater, Oklahoma. Um, we lived there for 10 years. That's all my kids knew. So, of course, they didn't 
They didn't know anything any different. It was moving closer to family, but, but mainly it was to be a part of this church, honestly. It was what I was excited about. And my wife was, she was supportive, and she was along for the ride. And, and we get here, and it's 100 degrees. Mm-hmm. And kids can't play outside. And so kids are stuck inside. And I'm going to work, and I'm having a blast with the people I work with. And she's stuck at home with kids, and you know. And so you see how this begins to happen. On top of that, I had signed up for seminary about four months before we moved, about three months before I even knew anything about, actually, two months before I knew anything about this opportunity. So about two weeks after we move into our new house, I start seminary, which was about 12 to 15 hours a week on top of, you know, we just moved to this new city on top of, I was trying to figure out what college ministry was. I had never done college ministry before. And, and so there was a lot going on in my world, and I was preoccupied. And, and slowly but surely, um, you know, my, my marriage suffered because of it. And, and I, I really believe God had called me to do the seminary. I don't believe He called me to do it in a way that would cause my marriage to suffer. And so that was something that I had to learn learn about and, and learn through and, and process through. But there were things that I didn't do during this two-and-a-half-year process that caused it to just kind of slowly um, wither. And, and so two-and-a-half years go by. I finally come up out of the clouds, out of the books, literally, going, oh, wow, this is great. I'm done with seminary, and now we can really... And I look around, and every, there's life in everything, and then I look at my marriage, and I go, no, there's no life here. It's, this is withering. This is not good. And, and it took about four months to figure that out. And, and, and thankfully, because of a great church and because of some great friends and encouragement, um, we, we started seeing a counselor. We actually started seeing Sharon, who's on staff at our church. And she was a huge help for us, helped us to get some things out, um, helped us to talk through some things. And we started reading a book together. And, we, and we've, I mean, we've turned a corner that I never thought was possible. And, and our marriage is better now than it's ever been. Um, but I, I say that because... There, I knew that it wasn't good for two and a half years, well, two years. I knew that it wasn't good, and I didn't do anything about it. And, and finally, there was a point in which I knew that me not doing anything was actually making it worse. Now, how does that relate to First Thessalonians? I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, but but when, I, when I look at this church, and I see, just like what Drew said, that this church seems to have it all together. Paul, he just dotes on them over and over and over. It's like, dude, get a room. Seriously. Like, you, okay, you love the church. Three chapters of it. You could have done it in maybe the first chapter, but over and over he talks about how much he loves this church. And it, it appears like they have it all together. Like they don't need anything. Um, but at some point, Paul realizes they do. And I wonder if it's because this church is a young church. We know that Paul was there... He was there for literally about three weeks, three Sabbaths, um, and then he had to leave. And then he's, he's worried that, like, I know something started, but I don't know if it started in vain. Like, if, if all that we did, did it, did it do anything? Did, did God do anything there? And, of course, when he gets the report back from Timothy, he's blown away. But he also knows this is a young church. And, and young church, if, if young churches are like young Christians, which... Most likely, this church is full of young Christians. Um, my experience with young Christians, because I was one, and, and I've, I've met 
and known so many, several. Um, and so the, the thing about young Christians is we always start with a sprint. Like we, we get excited about who Jesus is and we take off. And then at some point we, we realize I can't sprint my whole life. And, and, and the sprinting is, is not really working out. I don't know what's wrong. We get tired, we get burnt out, or we, or we realize I can't keep this up. And so we slow down and to a walk or maybe at some point we just stand still. And, and, and there's this moment where you realize, you, you just wake up and you realize, um, I haven't done anything. And me not doing anything is causing issues in my life. And so I don't know if Paul is, is speaking against that or, or, or he's trying to um, challenge them to not, to not uh, give up, to not lose heart, to not um, give in to complacency. But I, I, think it's, I think it's worth us talking about. Like, what do you do when you realize you're in a situation or you wake up, and, and, and I'm talking spiritually, like with your relationship with God, like what do you do when you get to a point where you don't know what to do? And, and everything you used to do isn't working. And, and, then, and then what do you do? Um, I'm going to erase this awesome word. This it reminds me of a a quadrant, a, an illustration that I want to share with you that has really helped me. In fact, Jim's the one that shared it with me. Um, he's taught me a lot in my life, and I like to, I guess, tease him and make fun of him in front of other people. Um, but he gave me permission, so it's all good. So this quadrant has really helped me understand what to do when I find myself in situations where I'm not doing well. So if you, if you want to draw this, next to this section right here, put good. Actually, take that back. Don't put good, put healthy. That's what I meant to do. Put healthy. And right here, put unhealthy. Up here, put healthy. And right here, put unhealthy. So you have, okay? So you have healthy, 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 unhealthy, healthy, unhealthy, or actually unhealthy, healthy, and unhealthy, unhealthy. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to explain it. So here, here's the thing. At, at any point in our life, we can, we can wake up or we can come to this realization and someone asks you, hey, how are you doing? And you can go, you know what? I'm actually doing really good. I'm really healthy right now. Things are, things are good. And, and, and that's the case with this church. Like, Paul's examining them and goes, you guys, are, you guys are good. You guys are healthy. Um, notice Paul doesn't just say, hey, you guys are awesome, and that's all I want to say. See you next time. He doesn't just stop at, at chapter 3, verse 9. He keeps going. He says, I wish I could come and, and supply what's lacking. And he prays that they would increase in love. And, and then chapter 4 goes into a list of things that, they need to, that he needs to challenge them on. Like, there's always, e- even when we're healthy, there's, there's a healthy way to respond to our health. And there's an unhealthy way to respond to our health. So like, 
a healthy way to respond to our health is, yeah, things are good. God is good, but God's always good. And, and I'm healthy. And, and the things that are going well in my life, I'm just considering and, and, and thanking God for the, His grace in my life. But it's circumstantial. And, you know, some of these things could change. And, but my, my happiness and my, me being good isn't determined by my circumstances. I'm, I'm trusting God. I'm thankful I'm grateful to Him. I'm going to praise Him for all the good things. But this is not what I live for. I live for Him. An unhealthy response to being healthy is to say, Oh yeah, things are good. I got this new job. And, I get, and, and then after about three months, they gave me a raise. So that's how I know things are good. Like God is so good. He's blessing me with all these things. And I, and I started reading on my Bible. I started going to church. And I, started get, I got involved in a table group. And I did, I did X, Y, and Z. And then everything started going great in my life. So if I, just, if I just continue to do X, Y, and Z, everything will always be great in my life. And that's kind of an unhealthy perspective on health. And, and I think sometimes we, 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 we focus on the wrong things and we respond to, to being good in an unhealthy way. There's also times where we find ourselves not good. Like we're, we're not, not in a healthy spot. And sometimes that can be circumstantial. Sometimes out of your control. Sometimes it can be because of complacency. Like, like me waking up in the spring of 2013 and realizing my marriage is not doing well. And, and I, I've done nothing about it. And so we were not healthy in that moment. And we hadn't been healthy for a while. Um, and so me not doing anything was actually an unhealthy way to respond to not being well. But then, but then by God's grace and God providing people in my life to, to challenge us and encourage us and we took steps to meet with people and to work on it and to talk through things was actually a healthy way to respond to my unhealth. You see what I'm saying? So, so there are this, these things right here are, are kind of out of your control. You're going to have times in your life, especially as, as followers of Jesus, where Things are going great, and your, your relationship with God is good. And then you're going to have times in your life where you wake up and you realize, okay, I, I haven't been praying. I haven't been reading my Bible. I'm, I'm not, I, don't, I don't feel close to God. I, or maybe I'm trying and I don't hear anything. Or, or, or maybe there are circumstances in my life. Um, I have friends that right now we're walking through this couple that's in marriage crisis. And I guarantee you, um, there's, it's, this didn't happen overnight. And they thought this would never happen to them. But it does. And so the chances of, of, of people in a room this size getting married someday and, and going through marriage difficulty is highly likely. Um, the, 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 the chance of people in this room, um, someone at some point finding out, hearing a diagnosis that, they, that you don't want to hear or finding out that someone you care about is diagnosed with something that you don't want to hear about. I mean, you're going to find yourself in places where you're not good. And it's okay, actually. Like, you can't control that sometimes. And someone asks you if you're good, and you say, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm struggling. I'm wrestling with this. I, I don't know what to do about this. I'm, uh, it could be a sin. It could be a circumstance. It could be a lot of things. But for whatever reason, you find yourself in this, in this spot. 
And there is, I just want to say this to you. I want you to hear this and remember this. There are healthy ways to respond to, to, to not being good, to unhealth. And there's, there's healthy things that you can do that you can't, there's certain things you can't do, certain situations and circumstances you can't change. But there's a lot that you can do to place yourself in a position where you're surrendered to God and He can work and you can wait on Him. And those are healthy responses to unhealthy situations. But then there's also unhealthy responses to unhealthy situations. Yeah, well, she did this. You know what I'm going to do? That's kind of what I'm dealing with right now. Um, and so there's, there's things that you do that will just make it worse and just um, close you off from the things that God's trying to show you and teach you and, and walk through with you. A healthy response to an unhealthy situation is to say, God, yeah, I'm not doing well, but I'm, I'm trusting God. I'm going to wait on Him, and, and, and I'm going to look for the things that He wants to show me. That's a healthy way to, to posture yourself in a difficult situation. So again, I don't, I don't know exactly um, where the Thessalonians fall. Probably they're doing well, and Paul wants to remind them and encourage them. Listen, there's still a lot, like, like Drew said, there's still a lot to learn. There's still a lot of growth that needs to take place. Um, Paul knows that, that there, is, there is so much to do. I, I don't know if you find yourself in, in a, which, which of these you would say you find yourself in, a healthy season or an unhealthy season, if you're doing well, or if you're not doing well, if you're struggling, I don't know where you would say you find yourself. Um, but wherever it is, I want us to hear Paul's encouragement. Um, Paul, in this prayer, uh, shows, shows us something that I think we need to see. Uh, he, he prays that the Lord would increase. Look, looking at verse 11. That the Lord would increase their love for one another. And for all. And that God would establish them as blameless and holy at the coming of Jesus. Like he recognizes like what they need more than anything is for God to do a work in them. For God to create a desire in them. For a desire to see to see their circumstances in light of his goodness and the gospel. I mean, he talks over and over about their afflictions and the things that they're facing. Um and so he, he's, he's asking, we need to pray that God would increase these things. That God would give us what we need. That He would give them a desire to respond to life in a way that brings glory to Him and, and, is, and is healthy for the church. And the same is true for us. That, that we need, what we need more than anything is, is for God to produce in us um, a, a, a healthy response to life that brings glory to Him. And, and is health for me, healthy for me. Paul prays that they would increase in love for one another and for all. Um, I, I think this is fascinating that, you know, notice he says, he, he asks that, that they would increase in love and that by increasing in love, they are, what they're doing is establishing themselves as holy and blameless in, in, in preparation for the coming of Jesus. It's almost like by increasing in their love for one another, it makes them fit to see Jesus when He returns. Think about that. 
He prays that God would increase their love. And, and several times throughout this book, he tells them, he praises them for their love for one another, and for their love for others. But he says, he, he says, I pray that God would increase your love. And as he increases your love, he, you are being prepared to meet Jesus when he returns. That's pretty crazy. Like there's this process that happens as we love one another, as we show love to those outside here. There's this process that happens that, that, that sets us apart and makes us holy. That's what that means. That word means that this set apart, to set apart for a purpose. And, and, and Jesus returning um, is, is, like, is like the culmination of us being set apart, us being able to see Him, be able to meet Him um, as, as blameless and holy for Him. And so I love, I love what Paul's doing here because if you think about this letter so far up to chapter 3, in chapter 4, it kind of, he, he kind of turns a corner and starts to challenge them with some things, which you'll get into next week. But I want you to hear what Paul does. He reminds them of what God has done in their life. He, he reminds them of the love that Paul and his, his team had for them so that they would walk in a way that's, way, um, that's worthy of, of Christ. He reminds them of the hope they have in Christ as they're facing these afflictions. And he prays that God would increase their love in order to grow in holiness. So I want us to hear that. And because, because I was telling Drew earlier today, when I think about you guys, and, and, and specifically those of you who I know and those of you who I've spent time with, um, I'm really, I, I'm truly encouraged by, by you all. By the things that you, you're doing with your life and with your time. By some of the questions you're asking, by by the way you're serving, by the way you're loving, by the way you're uh, setting aside time to, to connect and to be together and a community that's established and the way you, the way you love um, new people that come in. I mean, I, I know that maybe not everybody experiences that, but what, from what I see, I am truly encouraged. And, and yet, if, if I were to just stand up in front of you, I can't just say, you guys are awesome. See you later. I, because I want to I see you grow more. I want to see you surrender more. I want to see you um, take hold of this life that God has for you in a way that brings glory and honor to Him, that blesses those around you, and is, is your great joy. See, Paul recognizes that this church, there is, the task is, is huge. Like, the, the church, the the churches, or the sorry, the people in Thessalonica and Macedonia, like they don't know Jesus, and they're going to hell unless somebody tells them. And so I think about you guys, and I think, man, this this community, and if you're if you're new here, if you're visiting, man, we really do want to be a community that loves and cares for each other, that seeks to serve um, the church and this community in a way that represents who Christ is and what He's done. For us, I mean that's that's really what we want to do, and and I love I love that we can do that by His grace and by His strength through His Spirit, and so I want to just I want to just encourage you. And here in a second, I want to spend some time praying um, together. So we're gonna we're gonna have some pockets where you guys can just pray together. Uh, hopefully, that's not uncomfortable for you. Hopefully, there's someone in your group that is willing to to do that. 
Um, but I, I really just want to encourage you that, that this can be some of the best times in your life um, where, where you have some time and you have, you have margin and space in your life to really, to really grow in Christ and love others well and, and, and represent Christ because the people you live next to, the people you are in class with, the people you walk on campus with, there are people that don't know Jesus and they don't know what He's done for them and they don't want to live their life for Him and they, don't choose, they, they choose not to, to give God the glory that He desperately deserves. And so because of that, we need to, we need to remember this is what we're called to do. This is, this is why we gather together as a church to remind us of who we are in Him and to remind us of what God, the message and the witness that God has given us so that we can go out and point people to Him. So, I'm gonna, I want to pray for our time, and then I would like for you guys to pray, um, pray specifically um, that God would increase, that God would increase your love for each other, and that God would increase your love for this campus, and that ultimately God would increase your love for this community as well. So, so let me pray, and then you can break it up into groups of four or five or however however it works out, and just pray for those three things. Pray for that we would grow in that God would increase our love for each other, that God would increase our love for this campus, and that God would increase our love for this community here in Stillwater. So let me pray. Father, I thank you for moments of clarity where you have what seems to be broke through the clouds and revealed truth to me in a way that gets my attention and I know God I can be lazy and I can be I can get complacent and I'm thankful for your grace and I'm thankful for your spirit that challenges me that pulls me that convicts me and uh, I pray God that you would um, do that in us tonight that you would remind us of who you are remind us of this great incredible um, redemptive and restorative act that, that Jesus came to this earth to live a perfect life to, in order to die our death so that we can live for Him and live by Him. And so I pray, God, that You would just use this time of prayer to increase our love. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you would, break up into groups of three or four and just spend just a couple minutes, and a few minutes of prayer. And then I will um, draw us back together.